0: Okay, welcome to the Saturate Podcast. Uh, Duke Rivard here, Executive Director, Soma Family of Churches and Saturate. I'm really excited today to be joined by Adele Calhoun. Um, Adele is an author, she's a speaker, she's worked internationally. She now is a pastor to pastors and has a ministry mentoring all kinds of leaders and pastors uh, through spiritual direction, the Enneagram. Uh, She has an MA from Gordon-Conwell. She works with her husband, Doug, uh, currently at High Rock Church in Arlington, Massachusetts. And uh, this has written extensively. So the, 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 the place I discovered Adele was in her Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, but she's written other books like Imitations from God and is a co-author of True You and, and Women and Identity. So uh, welcome, Adele. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Duke. I'm delighted to be with you.
0: Yeah. In addition to what I did there uh, in the intro, maybe tell us a little bit about you right now and just what your life looks like uh, in ministry.
1: Okay. Um, my husband and I are co-pastors of Spiritual Formation. And we, uh, we do spiritual direction and soul care for uh, pastors at High Rock Covenant Church and in uh, some of the, the network that is around. And we also have a freelance ministry that works at resourcing leaders in a number of ways. So all of that that used to be face-to-face is now online in little boxes on Zoom <laughs> and it doesn't feel very satisfying, even though we're very grateful for technology.
0: <laughs> so sure. that's yeah. no, that's that's really honest. I think we're a lot of us are feeling the the lack of embodiment and realizing just how important that is in our life and ministry. So yeah, that's that's an honest answer. Um well I want to get started and jump right in and, and love to just start with your working definition of, of spiritual discipline. Um, yeah. What, what is a spiritual discipline? Why, why does, it, what does it exist to do?
1: So I borrow from, I think, Henry now and said something like a spiritual discipline is a way we make space for God to show up in our lives. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that because uh, spiritual disciplines make space to open us to worship God. And if uh, a spiritual discipline won't change you magically or anything, but if you don't have a space to open yourself to God, you will just do everything else in your life <laughs> mm-hmm. and you won't partner with the Spirit for your transformation. So we need space to do that.
0: Okay. We need so the, spiritual
1: practices to do that.
0: No, that's really good. Yeah. In, in the intro to, to the handbook, um, which I'm going to recommend anyone who, who's not picked up, take a look at it. It is really, really practical. But in, in the introduction, you talk about discovering desire. Um, how does desire relate to to the spiritual life?
1: So, you know, many of us grew up with the idea that desire was bad and that we needed to uh, squelch our desires because they were sinful desires. And there are sinful desires. But the thing that... Um, made me curious and the gospel was all of the times Jesus asked people the question, what do you want? And over and over, he asked about desires. Uh, what do you want me to do for you? Do you want to get well? So this sense of Jesus uh, seemed to know something about desire that I was not aware of. And so I just kept reading the gospels to to follow his his, um, sort of theme of asking about desires. And I found that desire for him was this opening for conversation. Mm. And he expressed his desires. You know, would you get me a drink of water? Well, his need and desire for water opens this big discussion with the woman at the well. Mm. That he saw desire as a... uh, as a way to get to the heart. Mm. And I think this is important because many of us grew up with the way we grow in faith is we, we keep the law. Mm. We do what we ought and what we should Mm. do. And if we obey, then we'll grow. Mm. But I found in my own experience that when I am motivated by ought or should I'll go about three months, and then it's like, uh, I can't do this anymore. (laughs) Wow. But when you're motivated by desire, you know, if you want to run a marathon, it, it could be cold outside. It could be raining, and what do you do? You want to run a marathon, you get up and you go run. If you want to learn to speak Italian because you're visiting Italy, you sit there with those headphones on and you say words. Because you have desire. And so I think Jesus saw desire as fuel. And with desire for God, hunger for growth, hunger to know Jesus and walk with him more closely, that'll take you a lot farther on your journey than just I ought to be a good person.
0: Mm. Yeah, because, yeah, as, as you're saying, Adele, I'm thinking about, yeah, the shelf life of the oughts and the shoulds versus desire. Um, and it and just, a, it, yeah, it appears to me that like people don't stop wanting things. It's like they, if they're told that you can't desire with God, then it seems like we just go into the basement with it or something. Like we just decide not to talk to God about desire, you know, or we, we feel shame about it or something, but it's not like humans cease to be desiring beings uh, because somewhere we picked up that we um, shouldn't. Yeah. Is that, is that been your experience that we, what do we truncate our our relationships because we can't acknowledge what we want?
1: So I think there is a sense in which all, all human beings are born hungry, not just physically hungry, but spiritually hungry. There's a, 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 emptiness inside us and we hunger and the hunger is meant to send us on the journey to God, and to what would fill us up. Um, and spiritual practices are a way we taste and see that the Lord is good, you know, they're a way, uh, they're, they really are a banquet that we choose to eat from. Here's, here's a, a way you can access and open yourself to God, and here's another way, and here's another way. And just like a like a Thanksgiving meal, um, for me, I choose the things I want to eat <laughs> that are my favorite things. I don't eat everything. And, you know, nobody can do all kinds of spiritual practices at, at one time. We we look at the season in our life and what we can do and what we can't do and what we're hungry for and what we're desiring and we choose spiritual practices that speak to those hungers and desires.
0: Mm, that's really good, Adele. That's really, really helpful. One thing that, our, you know, at Saturate we talk a lot about is discipleship and what does it mean to be and make disciples in the everyday stuff of life. And some of us have found Dallas Willard's definition pretty helpful, where he says discipleship is learning to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and then to do what Jesus did as I look back on my own journey as a Christian, even on my ministry, I think I've probably been stronger or provided more emphasis on, you know, becoming like Jesus, sanctification, and doing what Jesus did, you know, doing ministry and making disciples and seeing the kingdom advance. But where it feels like there's a gap and what we're talking about today is this idea of being with, with Jesus. Um, and, you know, it seems like I'm not the only one, perhaps, in North America that some of those the, the neglect of being with Jesus and the equipping or the awareness around it has been lost for much larger numbers. But if that's the case, wh- why do you think that is? Where where have we lost sort of the contemplative spirituality as a, as a core part of what it means to walk with Jesus and, and be his disciple?
1: So I, I, I love this question, and there's a lot of ways of answering it. Um, one is I just before I forget it, I want to say there's a wonderful book by Sky Jathani called "With," and it's just um, a book about being with Jesus, and and I think the the relational component of the Christian faith, this hanging out with Jesus, um, spending time with Jesus, feels very unproductive to people who are in the Western in a Western mindset and framework. We've all come up through a educational system that taught us what the important thing is to have the right information. And if we have the right information, then we'll do the right thing. And then the, the step beyond that is to say, once you have the right information, you can be productive and you can, uh, prove your own, uh, value by doing things that make others look at you and go, wow, aren't you productive? So we have sort of in the, in Western society, we have a, a cognitively based educational system that is about knowing, not relational. We have a, uh, a system that, uh, focuses on, uh, productivity and scale. You know, if it's bigger, it's better. If there are more people, that's better. And both of these things, the educational system and the productivity scale system, are different than the one, ones that were available to Jesus in first century Palestine. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we've been shaped by our culture. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Just even looking at marriages and the vulnerability of marriages and of all relationships, that's all about being with somebody and continuing to be interested and curious about them, even after I'm married for 43 years, even after 43 years of being married, you know, to find this person still unfolds and is still uh, worth knowing and asking questions of. Instead of oh, I know what they are. You know, I've I've figured that out, and so, um, um I think that's shaped our discipleship, and it's no, warped it,
0: in my opinion. No, that's so helpful. Even as you're talking and you're talking about the relationality of even a marriage, I'm hearing uh, a definition of what a human person is, which is different than the instrumentality of they're an instrument, right, or they're a machine, or they. They play a function in my life. And so, yeah, maybe we should talk a little bit about that. How, how has maybe our view of anthropology, our view of humans, um, been, uh, you know, wrongly shaped to the point that we we see relationships as a utility towards some other end versus an in and of itself, like you said, for something someone to be interested in and curious about for 43 years plus. Um, yeah, maybe speak on that.
1: So I think if, if our view of sanctification is uh, simplistic, uh, I'll learn to do the right thing. I will uh, obey all the rules and commandments. Uh, it becomes very transactional. And there's a lot of transactional relationships in our lives that have to do with, you know, I have allies, I have colleagues, they aren't friends, they're people that I carry on transactions with. And we can become transactional in our relationship with Jesus. What can I, what does Jesus need from me? What should I do? What are my gifts? How do I do those gifts in a way that I'm, I'm offering something to Jesus? And and yes, Jesus has gifted you. And I want to say, if I had to have a church full of gifted people, or a church full of people who were full of the fruit of the Spirit, it's, it's no question in my mind what I'm going to choose. Because if people are being formed into the image of God, the Spirit who indwells them is coming out of them. Love, joy, peace, patience, stillness, goodness, God. These things move you into the world in a way that is winsome and compelling and the hands and feet of Jesus if I am just seeking to go out and witness and get notches in my belt for having witnessed to somebody, it's transactional. And in this culture, people can sniff that out in a second. You you are interested in me, not because of who I am, but because you want me to think differently and you have an agenda. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's that's so huge. That is that is really, really helpful, Adele. Uh, when we talk about spiritual disciplines. We're talking about leading people uh, in our ministries towards connecting with Jesus, learning how to be with Jesus, and how to grow in into this thing—a a relationship of being with Jesus versus even using Jesus for productivity or or to get some ministry done or to get some something out output. Um, let's talk about you know just this obvious question of what probably most disciples in our culture are asking is like, how, you know, how do I grow in this way? Maybe I've tried some of the disciplines and, and they've, and there's not a desire or, or there's not fruit in in the same way that maybe there is for someone else. But yeah, how you learn to walk with people to discover what space for God looks like and what practices are most virtuous for them in that, in that journey.
1: So there is not a, a generic, sort of program or a generic discipline that fits everybody. It isn't like I can say, if you all will take aspirin, none of you will get headaches anymore. You know, if all of you will read scripture, you'll be fine. If, if all of you will uh, fast, um, you'll be good. Because our, our relationships to one another are always unique and unrepeatable, and my relationship to Jesus is unique, and it's not like Dukes. know, it's not like, because you may be in a place in a season of your life where the spiritual practices that open you to God don't work in the season of my life that I'm in. So part of it is recognizing that people can be in very different places in their spiritual journey they come with different wounds different nurture and nature different um educational ethnic backgrounds and that shapes their their cultural experience of church that's different and so to my mind one of the things about the um You know, truth is important. I'd be the last person to diminish the importance of left brain information. We need it. But there's been a lot of science around how we change. And it says the interesting thing about behavior and changing behavior is it's much easier for children to change and for adults to change when they see a model When they see someone they want to be like. And and for me, when I think about what has shaped my journey the most, um, it is, I love to read. I've sat through thousands of sermons. I've preached hundreds and hundreds of sermons. You know, it's the information is good, but it is the people who have looked on me with love, ask me questions showed me what their desire for God has done in their life that have shaped my soul. Mm -hmm. And it's Jesus saying, I've given you an example, you know, look at me. It's Paul saying, do what I've done. There's something about having models that we personally know. Mm -hmm. That is a very uh, shaping piece of anybody's journey.
0: Yeah. Now that's so helpful, Adele. I've often thought like we, you know, if we tell someone to go have a quiet time, right. Or we tell them to go and pray, um, that, that it's for some people, I wonder if that's just not, not helpful because there's, it's still too abstract, you know? And, and, and I've wondered if we don't train people, if we shouldn't train people collectively to go do individually versus beginning, imagining that things would start, Individually, and somehow they would bring that to the collective, you know. Um, and so I, I love what you're saying. This idea of almost like we need someone to show us, you know, we need to see it demonstrated, we need to experience it with another person who may be a little further along to then go back and maybe continue to build on that in times when we're alone, um, which is which is true for just about anything. You know, <laughs> I mean, we, we we try to train someone to cook in the, in the abstract. That's probably not going to go as well as getting to sit next to grandmother for multiple That's meals, right. you know, and watch her do it. Um, and, and even as you're talking, I'm also thinking about some of the stuff where, you know, with with trauma and people have experienced trauma, they can hear that God is love. But if they never experience an embodied person who is mature in love, it it's hard to believe, you know, it's hard to believe that the world is actually like you're saying it is, you know, I don't have a proxy, I don't have I don't have anybody to look at who seems like what you're saying is true, you know? And so he start, yeah, as you're, as you're talking, I was thinking, man, the, the, the world needs the mature body of Christ. You know, it needs the people of God to, to demonstrate, to be exemplars, to be able to say with integrity what Paul said, as you mentioned, uh, follow me as I follow Christ in this, in this area. Um, so yeah, th- let's talk a little bit about that. How have you done that? I know you're a spiritual director, so you sit sometimes one-to-one. I know you've also done it in a church context, which where I, ma- where I imagine you have responsibility for larger numbers. Um, how do you do some of that, uh, modeling and, and, and maybe even we might call it equipping where you're, you're not just asking them to read a book by themselves and to do it, but you're, you're trying to help them practice it or, or to enter into it with you.
1: So I'll try to give two examples here. Um, The first example is uh, when I was pastor of spiritual formation at a a large church in Chicagoland, uh, my responsibility, my job description was to um, give the congregation and the leaders in the church practices, relationships, and experiences that could open them to God. So... um, I could do that any way I wanted, but the the senior pastor gave me access to all of the leaders and to the staff and to the congregation. And I said to him, if you, he said, how, how can I measure what you're doing? How can I know that you're, you know, what you're doing is impactful. And I said, you've got to give me 10 years. And then I think you'll have a different sort of person sitting in the congregation. And To his credit, he said, okay, you go for it. And one of the things that I did in conjunction with the the pastor of um, care was we developed a nine-month, we called it Growing Your Soul, and we started out with 16 hand-picked people who applied for this journey because, you know, we weren't, you couldn't miss if you were, unless you were sick and it was every week for nine months, except Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, you know, there were a couple of, so it was a very rigorous. And the reason we started that way was it is only people who are really, really hungering for God. We're going to sign up for something like that. (laughs) We wanted the bar. high, and then um, we, we had two groups of eight that we, we worked with, but we, You know, we worked with the Spiritual Disciplines Handbook. We worked with the Spiritual Health Planner that's in the handbook. Um, We had them read um, Richard Foster's. We had a whole curriculum. um, Richard Foster's uh, sort of contemplative practices. Um, I forget the name of the book right now. It's a big Spiritual Disciplines. Um, No, it wasn't that. It's it's a compilation of writings that are by different uh, Christians throughout the centuries. um, Just reflecting sort of what was happening in those centuries in shaping the souls of Christians of that time. Um, If you look up his books, you'll, you'll see and see it. And the name may come to me as I sit here. Um, so we had them read that we had them uh, we worked with some themes like incarnational spirituality. so anyway we had a curriculum that we worked through that began with uh, a retreat that involved telling your story we had a mid mid uh, retreat midway through the curriculum and then an end of the, uh, curriculum retreat. And, uh, our goal was out of this group of 16 people that I would take one of those people and the care pastor would take one of those people and we would start two more groups. And then out of that, there would be, you know, it it would move that direction. And, it was it was an amazing it, it really shaped people and it was powerful and we worked with this model for probably oh seven years and um, the 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 people in the pews began to change because this was about witness it was about being in community it was about being seen and known by the community it was about spiritual practices that you tried and failed that it was about. So we, we did work with curriculum. So I'm going to say there, there is a place for curriculum there are, and there's curriculum out there. Um, including my book, but you know, there's other curriculums as well. And then I would say that the second thing goes back to the incarnational modeling and what happens to the human brain when we're seen and known. And I don't think it's any mistake or surprise in a way that when God wants to assure us that he is attached to us with unfailing chesed love, when he wants us to know that he will never abandon us or forsake us, he provides this priestly blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. Hmm. So this good. is your attachment to have somebody look at us with a gaze of love that says, I am so glad to be with you. I'm just beside myself to see you. I delight in you. And this is God's gaze of love. And all through the Psalms we hear, don't hide your face. Don't turn your face. Because the face of God is the surety that we are attached and that he will never leave us and forsake us. And in Jesus, that face is a human face. And everything we know about uh The way children develop that if we look at our babies with love, they develop secure attachment. Mm -hmm. And if the mother turns the face away, the baby reacts with distress and gets an irregular heart rhythm. The -hmm. mother turns back, the heart goes back to a normal rhythm. And that God designed us to be face to face. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And when our faces shine at one another, we provide a healing that is not intellectual that Mm -hmm. is not taught that is transmitted the same way a mother transmits love to a child.
0: Mm -hmm. So there
1: is this embodied love that is Mm -hmm. super powerful.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, this is so interesting. I've, you know, the years been reading Kurt Thompson reading Jim Wilder's, uh, Renovated and, and it, even Dallas Willard, I think, late in his life, and was really getting after a lot of what you're talking about. It like attach secure attachment, being what God is doing, uh, you know, in communion and and being in Christ. What does that What does that mean? But to actually have the mind of Christ and to have to be one with Christ and to experience that deep, deep. Relational connection that that Jesus prayed for, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in John seventeen. I mean, he prayed that we would we would be one, even as he and the Father are one. And there's you talk about the mutual mind of a mother with child and and all that kind of thing. I, I think that's you know, for me, that's fairly new, um, you know. But I also I've seen enough adoptions, you know, close to me where I see you know a child that has really insecure attachment. And I see all the fallout right of relationally and all. Right. The, all the things that spiral. And so, yeah, let's talk about how does, how does somebody maybe who has insecure attachment or who has a really broken God concept or God image because of their experience in life, how do, you, how do we help them to have a true sense of who God is enough that they can attach or they feel they, they want or desire to attach and hunger for God? Um, yeah, how do we help people who, who don't have a right image of God, even that they would desire attachment or they desire to stare into his face?
1: So I think part of the answer to that is we ask them to to tell us their story and we listen to that story and receive it with all of its pain or shame and let them know that we are not going away. We are not going away when we hear your story. We're not going to shame you when we hear your story. We are going to stay here and love you. And that's very irresistible. Now, I'm going to say there are people that are um, psychologically unhealthy enough that it's going to take therapy. You know, mm-hmm. it is going to take yep. uh, that that it's going to take professional care. Mm-hmm. But there are many of us who have wounds and um You know, attachment fears that being in a loving community can soothe and calm and change. Mm. And I would say that's happened to me to have people see. And I was in a covenant group for 13 years in Chicago of six women in ministry from different churches. The way we were together face to face, telling our stories. Um, being received and held was immensely healing to all of us.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's, that is so huge. We, a lot of our churches, we do something called DNA groups, which is discipleship, nurture, and accountability. And it's usually around, you know, same sex and triads and they really exist to create that kind of environment. Um, mm-hmm. Adele, what have, what have you discovered about, you know, helping to, because those groups can go awry, right? I mean, people can be unsafe, they can be fixers, right. they can be gossips. Like, there's a lot of ways that somebody could not be trustworthy in that space, but what have you learned about creating that dynamic that you experienced in Chicago that may help other leaders, you know, reinforce some of the principles that need to be there? Oh, uh,
1: so I wish I could answer that question. Because the thing about the group I was in, these six women, mature, healthy Christian women, you know? Yeah. And and I think what you're bringing up is what do we do with groups where people aren't mm-hmm. healthy, where people uh, don't have any sense of what it is like to be on the other side of them, you know, mm. lack of self-awareness. Um. So one of the things we did in the groups, the Growing Your Soul groups at at the church in Chicago is we we did work around what is it like to be on the other side of me, work that could increase people's awareness of how they come across. Because part of being in community is to have uh, the ability to look at a person when you're talking to them and see how what you're saying is impacting them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's emotional and mental health. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? no Without doubt. that, hurt people will just hurt people. And so part of it is when I can say, you know, <laughs> I feel very vulnerable. And uh, when I'm triggered, I try to take, control and show people that I, I'm powerful or mm-hmm. show people that I know what I'm talking about. And when we know that our defaults, we can do something with them. But until we're, God cannot work with what we are not aware of. So I think any any groups that are, are um, discipleship groups at some point, you can give them all kinds of material, but if they don't start to work with um, the log in their own eye mm. or how do people experience me that I'm not aware of mm, information alone won't change anybody. It'll just make us into Pharisees.
0: Mm. No, that's, that's so helpful. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Thank you for that. I want to go back to some of the disciplines uh, just to, to think through um, connection and and how do we press in to that kind of awareness? Um, I, I love the communal aspect and I, I do feel like that is, that is so helpful. Um, It's been said that silence is the kind of precondition of the spiritual life or the, you know, it's like the thing before the thing. Um, Do you agree with that? Do you feel like silence in a a noisy age is almost like the pre-step before we can even engage the rest of the disciplines or maybe speak on how you see silence or solitude and, 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 you know, factoring in on, on the other practices?
1: So um, what stands out to me about silence is, uh, I think it's Revelation 6. Um, It says, and there was silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. So we tend to think of heaven as pretty noisy. You know, we're all praising God and singing hymns and rejoicing in our Savior. And here's silence half an hour I don't know how long that is in eternal language you know the space <laughs> of half an hour sure. but if silence is part of the glory of heaven then there's something about what silence has to give us now and so part of it is um, silence does make space for contemplative virtues but it also makes place space for us to listen to our lives and God is speaking to us through our lives and without silence there's no reflection and so is it the most important spiritual practice I'm not going to say yes to that because um, some people are by nature silent and the most in spirit the most important spiritual practice for them may be much more of a practice of of speaking up or showing up or engagement um, than
0: being silent. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's really helpful. Um, well, yeah, as, we, as we're closing down today, I'd love to hear just anything that you've seen in COVID ways, maybe you're uh, adjusting or, or trends that you're seeing in terms of how people are pursuing being with Jesus in you know such a strange time.
1: So what I've noticed with the um, pastoral staff with which we work and minister is that what COVID has done for ministry people is make them work harder and try to figure out how to pivot and how to take things online and how to do church virtually and how to show people you care when you can't um, meet face to face or some people are... Are wanting to be face to face and other people are like, ooh, I gotta keep my mask on. And there's divisions even within churches about, you know, we need to go back, we shouldn't go back. That there's just so much stress and demand on pastors right now that they are utterly exhausted.
0: Mm.
1: And so what what we say to our pastors is we have to figure out how to do less.
0: Mm.
1: Because so many people right now, I mean, when COVID first started, we all felt like we had more space. And now nobody feels like they have more space anymore. You know, they've got a kid who's hybrid and a kid who's, who's three days a week. And a kid, you know, it's just crazy. So one of the things that we did this summer um, was everybody, people, none of the staff had taken any vacation since the beginning of March. Mm-hmm. And it's mid July because there's too much, mm-hmm. and so we said to the congregation, "We're going to take uh, two weeks of what we called brownout, which meant everybody on the staff was taking at least one of those weeks as a uh, as a a vacation day, vacation week, and it was a, a given vacation, not added to. It was like this is not your vacation time going away this is we're giving this to you mm-hmm. rest yes. <laughs> because we know things are going to pick up again in august and september and uh just i mean there were always people who were working because not everybody took the same week but it was a way of trying to say to our staff if you can't be healthy we can't show people how to be healthy mm-hmm. together and we are doing the same thing, something very similar, between Christmas Day and like January 5th or something for the staff. We'll make it known that that we we need to have time to collect ourselves and to be with God. We need to let Things go and we need to give each other slack. And so Mm -hmm. there are times I live in a culture that's very excellent, excellence oriented, you know, Mm -hmm. we want things done well, but we are all saying to one another, you know, this was good enough. This is good enough because we don't want people burning out. And the the definition of burnout is, you know, you're so exhausted. You can't do another thing Mm -hmm. and you keep doing the other thing because you feel like you don't have a choice. And so I think for leaders, I'd say rest, lean into the rest of being with God. It's an act of cultural resistance. And if you think about, you know, Pharaoh saying to the Israelites, more bricks. Work harder. Uh, give them straw. Make the work harder. That the gift of rest is what was what God gave to those slaves, mm-hmm. and they didn't know how to stop. They'd still go out on the Sabbath to collect manna. You know, and he, he's like, "You don't need to do that anymore. Only free people get to stop. You're free." So part of it is for us as pastors to say, we are free to stop. We are not slaves with paychecks.
0: Hmm. No, that's really helpful. As you're talking, I'm thinking of the disciplines of slowing and simplicity and the pace of a church. And, and you're, you're hitting on the fact that the, the pastors are the pace setters or the exemplars and their pace and their business tells a story about maybe what other people should be doing. Um, yeah. How do you, how do you, what, what's your dashboard? What do you pay attention to? How do you help your leaders set a pace or even a, the amount of let's say programming in a church or the amount of activities in the church that um, you know, you're, you're trying to equip people. You're trying to gather people, trying to meet needs You're also trying to keep an eye on what it feels like to be doing everything you're being asked to do, both as a staff and as a member. Um, Yeah, How how did leaders create a dashboard to figure out, man, we're running too too hot, you know? And if people (laughs) keep up with us, they're going to be burnt out, you know, versus um, early warning (laughs) signals that say, and I I see you intuitively doing that in COVID, uh, but have you discovered other ways to kind of keep your eye on the pace of the church and what it feels like so that can simplify or slow where needed, um, in seasons where it's just clear that, that, you know, the busyness and the pace of the, the demand for more the demand for excellence is, is really starting to do battle or do war with even the purposes of, of being healthy and, and growing up in Christ.
1: Well, I think it is, we, my husband and I have been senior pastors and we've also been, uh, pastors who are you know, not senior pastors, and we are in our fourth church now. So we have a, a number of different uh, pastoral experiences, and um, I think it is the job of the senior pastor to be aware um, of of the model he is setting for his staff. First of all, first and foremost, um, one of my favorite senior pastors, you know, uh, sends out emails at 3 a.m., 2 a.m. in the morning. Well, that communicates to the staff. It is okay to be up at 2 or 3 in the morning working on PowerPoints. That is a message that is not a healthy message. Um, I think uh, in our staff meetings, I mean, Doug and I are spiritual directors to all the staff at, at High Rock. And so we're part of the pulse as we talk, sit and talk with people. We can see what burnout is, is happening and what's going on. We sit in all the staff meetings, so we have a sense of what is the um, uh, sort of spiritual morale and maybe uh, collegial morale-like. We, we also ask questions like, how are you all sleeping? And um, – You know, often people seem to be waking up a lot at night. Well, what's waking you up and what do you do when you wake up at night? We we ask questions of, do you have an appetite? How are you eating? Are you eating more, eating less? How are you exercising? You know, what are you doing for your body? So we have a series of questions that are just not even spiritual (laughs) questions, you know, just questions about, how are you as an embodied being living mm. right now mm. because if you can't live right now we know what's happening to your spiritual practices
0: yeah. you know? no, absolutely <laughs> absolutely no and I, I thought that in fact we have two two leaders in our our family of churches that I've been talking to recently and just saying hey could we create a picture of health holistically you know spiritually? relationally, emotionally, and physically, so this would be a picture of health it's not it's like your disciplines it's not a, a new law that you have to live by it's just a a loose yeah, kind of vision for hey you probably need to drink this much water and you probably need this much sleep and you probably need some exercise you know that's the bodily stuff you know relationally you're probably lonely at times for God and lonely for others and and you also need space to rest alone and you know just trying to capture a picture of health, because I was a church planner, Adele, and I was, I would have really thought about spiritual health, and I I, I thought about relational health. I did not even have a category for emotional health or bodily health. And I I think some of my biggest challenges were actually bodily, you know, like I was just drinking so much coffee in Portland, Oregon, you know, hopped up on... so much caffeine, you know, to just keep motoring through caffeine and adrenaline to try to plant a church. And, and a lot of what I needed was somebody just to sit down and talk to me about my body, you know, and to talk about paying attention to that, you know, and, and, and the, and doing a diagnostic on, on the body. Uh, so I, I love the, yeah, just how holistic that is. And I think that leaders, if you're listening, uh, don't neglect, uh, the full, um, Bodily reality of what it means to be a human being, you know, with limits and uh, with a body, and sometimes, yeah, it's been said the most spiritual thing you could do is take a nap or drink some water or go on a walk. You know, Um, those those are those are real uh, contributors. So, um, yeah, Adele, this has just been great. I've got honestly twenty other questions I'd love to ask you, but we need to we need to close (laughs) it down today. I just want to encourage our audience: if you've not picked up the Spiritual Disciplines Handbook. It is, it is really, really gold. It's going to give you a lot of personal practices. I believe it's going to get practices for if you have DNA groups or triads, or if you have even larger communities that are trying to, to be with Jesus as disciples. I just think it's going to be a great resource for you. Uh, and so Adele, thank you for for being with us. I just really appreciate your heart. appreciate your ministry. And I'm better for it. And I know a lot of leaders around me who are as well. So uh, thank you for serving Jesus and, and serving us.
1: It's a pleasure to have been with you, Duke. May God bless your
0: ministry. Thank you so much, Adele. I really, really appreciate you and, and uh, sincerely thankful for, for the time that you gave us and for the, the, the resources you've put out. It's really a blessing. Also, Saturate audience, I just want to continue to remind you that we've relaunched the Saturate membership. There's a lot of video courses in there, a lot of e-books, a lot of curriculum. All the guides and, and docs that we've ever created are all there in one place. Um, it's you got a five-day uh, free um, membership if you sign up, and you can try it, see what's in there, uh, share it with your leaders. But uh, yeah, I invite you if you haven't looked at the Saturate membership recently to, to take a look. Also, I want to talk about next episode. So you may be aware uh, that Saturate is connected to the Soma family of churches. We've done a lot of ministry. There's a lot of overlap in our leaders. And uh, we're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of the Soma family. And so uh, next time, Jeff Vanderstelt and I will, will basically spend some time reminiscing over the past 10 years. We'll talk about 10 things we've learned uh, in leading the Soma family of churches for 10 years. Uh, we've learned a lot more than that, but we'll try to keep the list down. But really just want to look back, uh, consolidate learnings, share things, mistakes made, uh, you know, lessons learned. And, and hopefully that's a real benefit to you. And we'll look forward to that next time. As always, thanks for uh, tuning in the Saturday Podcast. And uh, yeah, as Adele said to me, be blessed as you go with Jesus. Thank you. Today's podcast was edited and produced by Justin Hugis. Saturate is committed to gospel saturation in North America and beyond until every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus in word and deed. This podcast is an ongoing conversation with disciples and leaders discussing how Jesus is better, His church is more, And his mission is every day. Learn more and activate your Saturate membership at saturatetheworld.com.